You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. It's Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah. And today we're going to have a little bit of a shorter case. I know I said that last time and it ended up being an hour, but I promise this one actually is shorter. <laughs> um, we're going to talk a little bit about Keith Polarecki. Um, he was a son, a brother, a father, and really in general seemed like a great guy um, from what I can tell from what I could find from different newspapers. Um he was born October 18th, 1964, to Daniel Sr. and Tina Polarecki, and they already had one son, Daniel Jr., and then Keith was born, and then after Keith was born, he actually also had a younger brother named Brandon. Um, now, when Keith did eventually die, which happened in 1996, um, Keith had been living with his parents at that time uh, because he was taking charge of the family business, which was a cleaning business, and he was also working in construction on the side. So most of the sources that I found kind of insinuated that he was living with both parents, but then I also found a couple where his parents had two separate addresses listed. So I think he was living with his father if they were in fact separated and maybe he was living with both of them before a separation or something. And that's why there was a little bit of that discrepancy. But like I said before, he was a father at the time that he died. He had a nine-year-old Keith Jr. And Keith Sr. was really dedicated to doing whatever he could to make life good for his son. Um, growing up, he did attend Pittston High School, and he went on to attend Penn State University Scranton, which I didn't even know Penn State had a Scranton campus. I honestly didn't either. But I don't know if it's still there or if it has a different name now. Um, but I mean, I know there's Penn State campuses everywhere. Oh, yeah. But... Everything in this case does take place between Luzerne and Lackawanna County here. So like I said, he attended Pittston High School. He was living in Pittston. He was discovered in Lackawanna County. And a couple other pieces of evidence were also found in Lackawanna County. So keep that in mind. That's kind of the region where we are in the state. So in August of 1997, it was the first complete week of August. It was like August 7th to the 14th. Um, the family business had closed for a week for a vacation. During that time, Daniel Sr., who is Keith's dad, thought that he had gone to Florida. I guess Keith had been talking before about um, going to Florida and Keith thought, or Daniel thought, you know, he must have just gone down while we were off. He hadn't seen him. But he eventually realized that Keith hadn't taken like luggage or clothing or anything like that with him, um, that it was all still in the house. So that's when he started to realize like, okay, well, he didn't go on a vacation. Something is wrong. Um, I mean, Keith and his dad were really close and his dad said, you know, anytime Keith was going to be out overnight or just was going to be home late, he would always let me know. And he had heard nothing from him. So eventually a missing persons report was filed on August 12th. 
And in that report, they told police that he was last seen by his father on the 7th of August and by his brother on the 5th. So I think that especially back then, it kind of took longer to realize that someone was missing because now we're so connected. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's not a lot of people that I know that like don't have a social media or don't check in with somebody. I mean, back then there was just so many opportunities for things to, I almost guess, fall through the cracks or just like these coincidences to line up. Yeah. I mean, speaking of, you know, how it's changed to today, a couple months ago, I think there was an ambulance that was like down the street from your house. And it was a time that we were going to record or meet together for something. And I think Grace's husband saw an ambulance go by. And I know you guys live close together. Yes. And like we all started panicking because we couldn't see your little icon moving in the group chat and we tried to message you and you didn't respond and we were like oh my gosh everything is going wrong the ambulance (laughs) is taking chelsea and it was just like someone else down the street and you were like no i'm good i just my phone wasn't right next to me and we totally panicked (laughs) and it was like a 10 minute time frame so yeah, it, that's definitely changed how how quickly we jump to they must be missing. Oh, Whereas, yeah, definitely. I mean, it was it was a difference of five days before this missing persons report was filed. And his dad just thought he was in Florida. Like you didn't have Instagram to go check. Yeah, because the vacation doesn't count unless you post at least twice a day on Instagram. That's what I've been told. <laughs> Um, so like I said, that missing persons report was filed on August 12th. So now on August 14th, 1997, the body of Keith John Polarecki was found lifeless near the Coxton rail yard in Duryea between 9.30 and 10 p.m. Uh, the body was actually left there, I'm assuming supervised, but I couldn't find details until the morning where it could be examined at the location of disposal rather than just taking it to like a funeral home or a hospital or I think whatever. that's interesting. I thought it was interesting, too. Um, and I mentioned it a little bit later, but um, because of the summer heat, decomp set in very quickly oh i see and i think it it was just they were afraid to move something and miss something in the dark um because he was his body was found by two people well some articles say two some say one but someone was just like walking near the rail yard and ended up seeing this body there um and so he was discovered between like nine 30 and 10 by the time they get to a phone, they call police, the police gather and get there and tape off the scene. It's, I don't know what that time frame looks like, but I want to think it's probably at least 1130 or midnight and it's dark and it's probably not a well-lit area. So I can understand it, I guess. Yeah. But it it's definitely I don't think I've ever heard of that in a case before where they just leave the body there. Same. Um, so the next morning when they were able to examine it, where they had found it and start trying to figure out who it was, um, 
police did contact the family to request dental records because what they could tell did match the description. And of course, you're going to look at any missing persons when you find a John Doe. So that's how the family found out that he had died because they requested dental records and then the dental records matched. Now, at first, detectives really weren't sure of the cause of death. There was some obvious signs of physical trauma that we'll talk about, um, but they weren't entirely sure. They just called it suspicious. And then a year later, and after a second autopsy, his death was officially declared a homicide. So that kind of stacks the cards against you when the initial, like the initial cause of death isn't even homicide. That already sets progress on the case back because if it was just an accident, you're not really going to investigate it more than you would have to. I wonder why um, there were two two autopsies. I wonder if that was by family request or just to... It was? It was, yeah. Okay. So um, it started with the first, just like, you know, the Emmy does an autopsy. Um, and reports showed that he was beaten severely with some sort of metal pipe. Um before his body was placed near the rail yard. So they were able to say, you know, he was beaten and placed there. Like he wasn't just there and randomly got attacked. So I don't know how that's only suspicious and not homicide because if it's trauma and a planted body, um, I don't know, but definitions of things were different in 97 than they are in the law today. Um, So it may have just been something like that. Now, the coroner who performed the first autopsy did say, like I mentioned before, that it was a suspicious death. And he said Keith did have several broken ribs. And I found on one source that he had nine broken ribs, five on one side, four on the other. Um, And he had been dead likely three to six days before he was discovered. So, yeah. Now, this is kind of what I mentioned before. Due to the summer heat um, over the course of that three to six days and with his body being exposed to the elements, he had become so badly decomposed that they needed the dental records to identify him. Like they weren't just a secondary identification. It was that's the only way we're going to be able to make a, a legitimate identification that's crazy i i wonder though you say nine broken ribs is a possibility of him his death not only just the blunt force trauma but i always i'm like i have a fear of breaking a rib and it like puncturing like internal organs it could have um there was nothing specifically stated about that happening but it's definitely possible um because the cause of death still would have been the trauma. So I don't know if it would have gotten more specific. True. Um, and maybe with like, it being so de- decomposed, it wasn't something they could actually probably tell. Because I guarantee the lungs probably were right. one of the first things to uh, deteriorate. That's a very good point, too. Yeah. Um, especially with as hot as it was. I mean, it's going to literally cook the insides so you're not going to be able to tell if there was a whole lot of damage to them true but obviously the bones aren't going to heal so you're still going to see that they're broken that's true 
Um, now, this timeline of his body being there for three to six days means that he had died before his family even filed the missing persons report. That's terrible. Which the way that just came out of my mouth, it sounded like I'm saying that the family didn't do enough. And that's not what I mean. I mean that he was already dead before anybody even realized he was missing. That's like, so sad. Just because you weren't totally connected to everybody. And that, I mean, if it is the six days, he was literally killed the day that his dad saw him. Because his dad had seen him a week before. Yeah. So, like, it would have been that night or the next day. So it would have been within those first couple of days when they all thought he was in Florida. Mm-hmm. So I, that just breaks my heart that they filed this report and kind of had that hope. And then it was like just absolutely pulled away from them. So I did find an article. Actually, I found a handful of articles from the Citizen's Voice. But one specific article that came from 1996 said that Keith was struggling with an alcohol problem. And at one point, he had actually lost custody of his son. Um, He did get himself clean shortly before he was murdered in order to gain custody back of his son. And his dad said that losing his son completely rocked his world. Like it just absolutely flipped and motivated him to kind of clean up those low spots of his life. And I'm not mentioning that to say like, oh, maybe he was getting involved with bad things and that's why he got hurt. Um, But more so just to show that he was less likely to be involved in anything because he really wanted to be able to give Keith Jr. a, a great life. So I'm like, I guess I'll play devil's advocate. And I know it's like, I get in not arguments, but debates with people. Um, I think if you have those contacts and people that are associating with things like that, almost like your demons can come back at any time just because you stopped the people that you, yeah, the people that you associate with, or even someone that you might've drank with and you like saw an acquaintance X, Y, and Z. Someone could have seen you in a bar and assumed you're still drinking. I just like for me, I will say, and I know I'll get so much hate and I know you'll be so mad at me. I, and I think we've had this conversation. I think pot is a gateway drug, but let me clarify. I'm all for pot being legalized because my mom dated a drug dealer and they would lace it. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And it's for a stronger hit. So, I mean, there's technicalities around it, but when you're buying pot from someone, not only are they selling pot, they're selling other things. So that means the people associated with them are doing bigger things. It's just like kind of a whole revolving thing. Um, so I, even though you're getting on a better path, there will always be demons. If you're in that lifestyle that will come back. And it's really surprising. Like it's been a long time since I dealt with like my mom and her issues and sometimes i get surprised like i'm just like i don't even know how you found me how this come up or why you even thought it would be necessary to reach out wow so yeah i mean i can i can definitely see that um i couldn't find anything that he was involved with any drugs other than alcohol um and from what i'm understanding he very much was like back on the straight and narrow which is Um, awesome but you know again we never know fully because just the the answers are not there um but hopefully that still was true i like to think that it was um and like his son now 
has nothing negative to say about his father. So, and how old was his son again? He was nine at the time. Okay. Yeah. So after a while, no progress was being made in the case. And after reading about another homicide that was being aggressively investigated in Lackawanna County, as opposed to this one that was very lackluster, his dad reached out to then District Attorney Paul Olszewski. And I hope I'm saying that right from my limited knowledge of Polish, I think. That's how you say it. But um, Daniel made this initial call in the beginning of 1977. So um, I couldn't find an exact date, but I'm assuming somewhere like January, February. And uh, District Attorney Olszewski then pulled together an entire team of state police and county detectives. And by Easter of that year, so I should have looked up when Easter was in 1997, but, you know, Late March, early April is usually when Easter falls. Um, by that point, the team had pulled enough evidence in order to get an exhumation of the body to perform that second autopsy. I see. So that's where that second one comes in. So I have a question. If the family asks for that exhumation, are they the ones that pay for it? Or will that be the police because they believe they have enough evidence to pull? I think... It falls on the police um, okay. because if the family had wanted it, they would have had to, you know, pay that. And um, I couldn't find anything that said the family was pushing for a second autopsy, but rather I know they were looking for someone to actually look at the evidence. I see. Um, so it seems like Olszewski and his team found enough evidence that it, led to another autopsy being possible um which is a good thing because the second autopsy confirmed the cause of death as a homicide by multiple blunt force trauma as opposed to the suspicious death that they couldn't label as a homicide before so it really helped to um i guess spark the investigation further now, when this investigation actually got rolling after the second autopsy, police got a call about a missing vehicle. Shantae Armitage reported that her brother's 1984 Oldsmobile Cutlass was stolen. And not too long after she reported it, it was found in Springbrook Township in Lackawanna, um, off the beaten path it was described as like very rural very secluded basically just like leaving a car in the woods and when the car was found the lights were broken like the headlights were kicked out and there was a burnt sock hanging out of the gas tank which means someone was probably trying to light the sock so that it would light the gas tank and make the car explode huh. but they failed because i guess the sock put itself out Apparently. <laughs> now, as the investigation went on, there were two arrests made in relationship to the vehicle. Um, so Tracy Tonkin pleaded guilty to criminal mischief in 1999. So we're kind of jumping forward a couple years here. And Aaron Chapman pleaded guilty to tampering with evidence in 2000. So they're admitting to what they did in 1997, but they're admitting it years later um 
Now, the story that Aaron told is that Tracy had called her to ask for help torching a vehicle because she said the vehicle might contain evidence from a murder. <laughs> might? Yeah. Aaron is the one who admitted to putting the sock in the gas tank and then lighting the sock in an attempt to destroy the vehicle. So I don't know why hers is tampering with evidence and Tracy's is criminal mischief. I guess because maybe Tracy had more of the thought and Aaron actually did the tampering. But um, Tracy claimed that she had been trying to set her boyfriend's car on fire at the time. So Tracy was dating Shantae's brother. Okay. So Shantae made the report that her brother's car was stolen. And Tracy admitted that she was trying to set this same car on fire. Okay. Now, according to one article, all three women, so Tracy, Aaron, and Shantae, admitted to having kicked out the lights and damaging the vehicle to make it look like it was stolen. And then just, I don't know, I guess when you steal cars, you just punch out the lights. I don't know why that equates to a stolen car. Like, I could see wrecking it. That makes it, like, not really usable. <laughs> like, I could see if they wrecked it somewhere. Like, oh, someone stole the car and then wrecked it and ran away. But I, I don't know that, I mean, my dad had a car stolen once and when they found it, the, the car was fine. Like everything in it was gone, but the lights weren't like kicked out. I don't know. But that's just one experience. Anyway, another person who was interviewed said that Tracy had told him that they had to burn the stuff in the car so as not to incriminate her boyfriend, Shantae's brother, whose name was John. There was also supposedly a pipe in the car. Womp womp. Yeah. So Tracy added that John didn't know the girls were planning to burn the car and that he didn't put them up to it. In fact, he was in jail when they did it. Huh. But I searched freaking everywhere, like Pennsylvania court system dockets, Google other search engines like trying to search family names and go to ancestry and figure out if i can find this right john or jonathan armitage and i could not find anything i have no idea what he was in jail for um only that he was in jail at the time of the alleged car theft that they admitted to and um the torching of the car okay um so there was one article that I found that Shantae had driven the car the day before. And then when she went outside the next day is when the car was gone. Um, and allegedly when all of the women were trying to take care of the car, get rid of it, one of them said, and it wasn't clarified who said it, but one of them said the body might have been in the trunk. We need to burn the car. And that's a direct quote from the Ugh. newspaper. Um, th those are some pretty devoted friends. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm not sure I would do that for a friend. I, I wouldn't. No. I mean, like, I, I love my friends. I love my family. But, you know, if I looked in my brother's trunk and there were blood stains because a dead body was in there, like, I wouldn't be trying to light his car on fire to get no. rid of it. Not at all. No. Because I don't want to be an accessory. Like, no. If I find that out, like, I'm reporting you. Sorry. But, I mean, you figure you've got 
John, his sister, his girlfriend, and then just a friend of his girlfriend are all just trying to get rid of this car. Like that's a friend of a friend is yeah. some serious devotion there. They must have been younger. Um, yeah, I think Tracy was 20. It's like a non-common sense thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you'd really need a ride or die. You need to think this through yeah. past the night. <laughs> I mean, my best friend and I have been there for each other literally since the day I was born. But I don't know. I don't know. If she was killing people, I don't think I'd be able to, like, burn her truck. <laughs> as much as I love her. I don't think I'd be able to cover up a murder for her. I get that. Anyway, like I said, um, I tried to find more information on him and I couldn't find anything. I found a couple different Jonathan Armitages and in some articles I could tell it wasn't him. In others, I wasn't sure, but nothing was concrete. So if anyone happens to um, have a connection to knowing anything more about him, I'd be very curious for any information you have. But at this point, the family is just asking for answers and they're begging the public to come forward with anything that they might know. Um, this really is one of those cases where there's like one or two pieces that don't quite fit the puzzle. And as soon as they get those right pieces to fit in, they're going to have a solid case to take um, to give that final and absolute closure over the cold case. Well, I have a question. If I mean, obviously, they did not torch the car, and it was found. I'm after so much time and better testing. Did they pull the car for evidence and stuff to link so, it to? Um, they do have some. I believe it was DNA. Um, I have it in my notes a little bit further down. Um, that they are continuing to test, or it's on the list for testing. But of course cold cases go to the very end of the list for any sort of testing of course um, but they are i mean this is an active like i mean it's a cold case because it's so old but they're actively working with leads and suspects and i mean they have they pretty much have a game plan and from what i understand they know where they want to go but they just need that extra one or two pieces of evidence to be able to make that call or make that arrest or whatever, get the warrant, um, whatever it is that they need. Um, so one thing that his son had said in one of the articles I read was that he's really just heartbroken that his daughter's never going to know her grandfather because he was such a great man. And I mean, I think back to memories that i have of age nine and younger and i don't think i remember too much and i kind of love that his dad's memories are living on even though he was so young when he died so my grandfather raised me and then i had landon and my grandfather had uh congenital heart failure he had it you know all his life basically um and he was really sick and he died when landon was almost six and i want to say we were there if not every day we talked to him every day we I, gosh i think we lived five minutes from him Landon still has very good memories and, you know, I show pictures and videos and stuff like that. But like, yeah, I think, I think he'll still have them when he's older. I'd hope. 
Yeah. And I guess part of that too, is you grow up hearing the stories again and kind of being reminded a lot of the stories. So they become more permanent in your brain Yeah, as well. So like you don't lose that memory because people keep talking about it. So it keeps it more fresh, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of how it is with my grandfather. I was five when he died. So I don't really have any memories that I can recall that nobody else does. But I feel like I do because I've heard my dad talk about him so much. And my, you know, my mom and dad will tell stories. My aunt will tell stories. And so I feel like I still have a memory of him, even though I was so young when he died. So I guess that that makes sense. That can work. Um, And that's pretty much what he's saying for his daughter is like, you know, we tell her the stories. We love getting to share the stories, but, you know, she's never going to be able to sit on my dad's leg and be bounced on his knee. You know, like that's what grandpas do. And so that just kind of ripped my heart out when I read it. So I had to share it with all of you and (laughs) let your hearts be ripped out also. Wonderful. Um, I mean, you're welcome. It's what I'm here for. (laughs) Um, as of a news update from July of 2021, state troopers are saying this is 100% still a solvable case. Um, the current trooper on the case, or at least the trooper that they uh, interviewed, is Caroline Rayeski. And she said, quote, I believe there's many people who know who did this. We just hope somebody will get the courage to come forward and tell us what they know, unquote. This article from 2021 also mentioned the DNA that I was talking about earlier. They're looking at using some of the new DNA analysis tactics with evidence. And I'm assuming that means there is DNA evidence somewhere, whether it's evidence from the perpetrator that was left somewhere on uh, Keith or whether it's Keith's DNA that was maybe in the vehicle or you know, blood that they found in the vehicle or something that they're going to try to tie to Keith. I feel like it's the former because they would be able to compare Keith's DNA to Keith's DNA. You know what I mean? Like they have his body. So I'm thinking it's probably that first option, but I guess we'll see. I mean, I don't know exactly what they have. I couldn't find anything specific, just this kind of this article that alluded to the idea that there's DNA somewhere. Um, And the article actually ends with Keith Jr. saying that he knows who committed this crime. He said, quote, I do know, like I said, it will be brought up soon. These people will face what they should have 20 years, 25 years ago. Well, that is interesting. Yeah. Um, now, as far as official theories go, there really haven't been public theories released by police. I couldn't even find this on like Reddit or Web Sleuths, like to even just see comments there. Um, but clearly the family has an idea of who it is because his son is saying, I know who did this. <laughs> so could it just be that they automatically think that it's Jonathan? I mean, to me, it seems like there's a really good case to be made against him. Yeah. Um, especially because they failed at destroying the car. True. Um, I mean, the the car going up in flames would have looked sketchy anyway. Um, but if they had been able to destroy the the vehicle, then 
you know, they wouldn't have even the little bit that they might have. Again, I don't know if what they have came from there. Yeah. Um, but from what I could find that is at least public knowledge, um, it definitely seems like there could be a case against Jonathan. But we also know how often they keep things, you know, really close to the chest. Yeah. So it's possible that he's just kind of a red herring and he's really not really has nothing to do with it. So, well, honestly, um, I think as time goes on, it's good for cases because relationships dissolve, things get broken, loyalties change, people are more willing to talk. And I mean, I yeah. know it sucks for families, but sometimes that's really what it takes is someone willing to change their allegiance or are getting too overwhelmed with the burden of holding such a yes. story. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, it's hard for me to keep secrets. Just like if one friend tells me something and says, Hey, don't share this with anyone. Like, obviously I keep that trust, but I mean, that's a struggle to me, let alone if my brother or best friend was like, Hey, I killed someone. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell. I'm the worst. At I mean, it. I'm terrible. I'm I'm so bad. Like we did a surprise birthday party for my husband for his 30th last year. And it was like the I couldn't even keep it a secret. Like I told him hmm. I was like, hey, we're having a birthday party for you. Um, You just won't know, like because I do themed parties because I'm a teacher. So just that's everything is themed. Um, I was like, you just can't know the theme. And like, that was the big surprise. Like it, there was no, I can't, yeah. I can't imagine being in a position like that, but I think you do have a good point. Um, it's quite possible that over 25 years, almost 26 years, um, those allegiances have changed and relationships have changed. So um, hopefully they are able to get those final pieces that they need. Um, like I said, state troopers say that they are working several leads in this case. If you do have any information, you are asked to call state police at the Wilkes-Barre Barracks, and you can reach them at 570-697-2000. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Sarah. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.